Good evening and good day, everybody. Great to be back with you guys. So today is a live chat session. And before we begin, I have an announcement. Uh, super chats are gone. I have decided to turn off the super chat feature. And the reason for that is that it kind of creates a divide between the viewers, which uh, I don't think is appropriate. And it's actually unfair to the youngsters who can't uh, afford to pay. And it's distracting for me to see all the colored questions. And it kind of detracts the attention away from the other questions. So I want all questions to be at the to, to have the same weightage. I want to answer the best questions. So that's the reason why I have decided to turn off the super chats. Uh, so thank you to everybody who has contributed in the past. But going forward, super chats will not be available. Super stickers are still available. And super chats will be turned off in question and answer sessions. Maybe in some other future live episodes, we may have it on. I will decide later on. And for those of you who have expressed a desire to contribute to this work that I'm doing, uh, I will soon be uh, opening a membership section, maybe next week or so. So I will let you guys know about it. But it's entirely voluntary, and uh, it's, it's not required that you become a member. I will always answer all of your questions for free here. I believe that knowledge should always be free. I'm not doing this for money. It's not about the money. It's about I, I do this because I enjoy uh, having this conversation with you and enjoy sharing the knowledge. So knowledge should always be free, and it will always be free here on this channel. So that's the uh, so the channel is evolving. It's going to evolve further next week, and I will let you know by the end of this week. So so that's the thing. Super chats are gone. Super stickers are still there, and memberships will be coming within a week or so. Right, so let's get into it. I'm going to answer your live questions today, only live, and we'll keep it fast. We'll keep it brief, and let me take a look at what questions you have been asking. Question one, Meghna asks, how did Lord Macaulay convince Indian leaders that Western education system was better than Gurukul's, and how were the Gurukul's banned? He did not have to convince anybody of anything, right? The British were in power and they used the power and they changed the system and they made things such that in order to get a job in the Indian government, the British Indian government, you had to pass through the education system. There, British, foreign, Macaulay and education system. So they constructed the system of governance and of, of jobs in such a manner that it became impossible to get a government job unless you went through the Macaulay and education system. So that's why over time, Indians had no option but to go through that. And that's the same system we have today. The education system today is only geared towards, uh, I mean, to, towards becoming ready for the job market. It doesn't really educate you. So that's the short answer. He did not have to convince anybody. He just imposed it. The British simply imposed this new education system on the country. And the country was forced to go along with, with, the, with the program that they had created. That's in brief. I think we should have a, a session separately for education, which is a very important topic. So maybe we'll do it soon. So, but in short, that's the answer to your question. He did not convince anybody. He just shoved it down India's throat. Okay. Arindam asks, did the Neanderthals procreate with the Homo sapiens? Yes, they did. We have evidence that the Neanderthals procreated with Homo sapiens and the Denisovans as well. And it is well known that most non-African people, all non-African people, have about 4 to 6% Neanderthal DNA. 
So in effect, the Neanderthals never vanished. They did not actually go extinct. They live on through us. We have some Neanderthal ancestry. It's like having about, I don't know, one great great grandparent or so who is Neanderthal, something like that. So we all have some Neanderthal ancestry. And this is about non-African humans. So this happened after the out of Africa movement of our ancestors. And they interbred with the Neanderthals, probably somewhere in the Middle East or thereabouts before they moved on to India and they made India their home base from where they went all over the world. And it is also known that some Africans also have a little bit of Neanderthal ancestry because probably that what happened was that some Homo sapiens went back into Africa at some point in time. That's what it looks like. So human history is quite complicated. It's not a linear progression from Homo habilis to Homo erectus or whatever the sequence is and onwards to Homo neanderthalis, Homo sapiens, etc. It's a complex back and forth movement. There are many species and subspecies. Some went extinct, some are still around. We, we have ancestry from various lineages. Some of them are not even known which what they were. So it's a complex uh, scenario. The more we under the more evidence and data we find, the more complex the story becomes. So it's not a simple linear progression. It's it's much more complex. There are many back and forth movements. There are many waves of migrations outwards and inwards. So the story is just beginning. It's going to get much more complex. So to sh in short, to answer your question, yes, the Neanderthals did procreate with our distant ancestors and they live on through us. Okay, some more questions. Some of them I have already answered. I am putting up short clips and uh, a few clips per day. Right now more, later less. So hopefully you will get all the answers in the short clips, the ones you're seeking. But let me quickly find some more questions. Okay, Om Pachak asks, how to make a career in history and mythology as I am deeply interested in it right now, right from when I was six years old. Today I'm 17. Well, I'm glad to know that you want to do that. In India, the only career in history and mythology, there's no career in mythology, there's only a career in history. And the only uh, long-term path as of today is that of a history teacher or professor. So you have to either be a history teacher in a school or a history professor in a college or a university. There is no research being done in history. So as of today, the only career is that. That's the only career path open to you. In the future, maybe if the government actually starts investing in real research, uh, real research, history research, then we may have history institutes and those things in the, in the future, in which case your career paths could broaden up. So what I would say right now is, if that's what, what, what you want to do, if, if being a history teacher interests you or professor, then maybe you can go along the path. Otherwise, you can go along with some other career and keep this option open. Because at the age of 17, we don't really know what we want to do. We've all been there, right? I, the thing is this, if you want to contribute to the country in some way, then explore different things and try different job paths. Because very soon, the job market is going to be completely transformed. It's all going to be based on skills and not on your paper degrees. Degrees are very soon going to become irrelevant and obsolete. The education system is already obsolete. So right now, we are already seeing this. There's a great demand for skills that are not taught in our education system. 
search engine optimization, graphic design, website design, website development, uh, video editing, and so much more. There is, these are all skills, right? These are all artistic and technical skills. And these are very, very valuable. You can have a very good lucrative career based on that. So I would suggest to everybody who's at this stage, 17, 16, 15 years old, that do go through the education system uh, just in case, because it's always better to have two plans, plan A, plan B. So get your degree, whatever you're pursuing, but also learn some skills, because it is in the long term that these skills are going to be more valuable. And try and build something, try and solve some problems with these skills, because problem solving is the root, it's the, it's the uh, core uh it's the core of entrepreneurship so try and learn different skills try and understand finance try and understand business and acquire skills and keep your passions alive like the this passion in history and mythology so if you were to follow this sort of path and acquire different skills and also keep learning the history mythology etc then maybe 10 years in the future you will have lots of avenues open to you in this very field so i would say at this age don't set yourself on one single career path, keep options open, keep your passion alive, keep nurturing it. And by the time you're 30, you will have a much better grounding and understanding of what you want to do. Because I think that until the age of 30, we are still lost and clueless because it takes some experience to, to reach that understanding of where you want to be in life. And 30 is very young. So you have another 13 years, I would say to explore. So try different jobs, try different career paths and learn as many skills as you can. And maybe by the time you're about a decade from now, you will have a better idea of what career paths are open because the things because our country and the world will have changed a lot in the next 10 years and many, many avenues will be open. So that's my answer to you, sir. Thank you for this question. Arindam asks, what was the religion of the Kushans before they arrived in India? Were they Hindus or Buddhists? I believe that uh, to the Skith, uh, the Kushans are essentially the easternmost branch of the Scythians. That's what they were. They were an Indian origin people. The Scythians too were an Indian origin people. The Kushans looked more European than Indian. I mean, if you see the mummies from the Tarim Basin River, you will see that they, they many of them have, have red hair. Some of them have blonde hair. So it looks like they looked more European than Indian, but the genetics were very much Indian, R1A1A. That is the patrilineal lineage you find in almost all Tarim Basin mummies. And these are believed to be most likely the ancestors of the Kushans. So these are essentially an extension of the Scythian peoples, these nomadic peoples who uh, prospered across Eurasia all the way from Eastern Europe to present-day so-called Xinjiang of China in the Tarim River, River Basin. So it is recorded by the Greeks and by the uh, Persians and other peoples that uh, the Scythians worshipped the sun. The sun was their god, the sun god, at least the primary god. I'm sure they were all polytheistic, like all Indian origin people in, the, in, uh, in antiquity. And what exactly the religion see we don't have religions religion is a western abrahamic concept a religion is something that has one prophet and one book and one set of rules that everybody must follow uh, in polytheistic uh, cultures 
there is no one path to follow you can follow any path you like essentially there is there are certain things that are that have more primacy but within that or even outside that you can follow any path you want so there is no religion as such hinduism is not a religion it's a culture it's a civilization it's it's the essence of a civilization so we don't know what exactly what precisely they followed but they were able the kushans they were able to assimilate most harmoniously with the larger indian population today we don't even know who has kushan ancestry who has not we all look the same we all have the same genetics because they also have the same genetics as us so because they were able to integrate so peacefully so harmoniously with indian society it is most likely that they were just as polytheistic as us as our ancestors 2000 years ago and they most likely had the same gods because in this uh, region of uh, the Tarim Basin River, you find lots of uh, carvings and frescoes and all that full of Indian divinities and art, you know, whether Buddhist or whether uh, what we now call Hinduism. It's all the same thing, actually, like I have explained in the past. So we don't have exact uh, data, but from the evidence that we have, it is very clear that these were polytheistic people and they were very much the same culture as the Indians, because they assimilated so harmoniously without a single issue at all. There is no one record of any ethnic strife or cultural strife or religious strife, any riots, any 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 such thing between them and the Indian people. So most likely they were just as Hindu as our ancestors in mainland India. Okay. This is a great question. Abhijit Bose asks, why did Genghis Khan attack the Bamiyan Buddhas in 1221 AD? No, sir. Who told you that he attacked the Bamiyan Buddhas? He's a guy who built Buddhist temples in Khwarazm, in present-day Persia and Central Asia, on the top of the uh, mosques that he destroyed. Right? The, the Mongols are known to have done that. They, they, they were very respectful towards the Buddha. During Chinggis Khan's time, they were still not officially Buddhists. Buddhism was present in Mongolia. They were very much aware of Buddhism, of the teachings of the Buddha. Chinggis Khan himself was a Tengrist. He believed in Tengrism. That was the uh, culture or, or practice that he followed. It is a polytheistic practice, which is very strikingly similar to Vedic Hinduism in many ways. The pantheon of gods is almost the same with different names. And therefore, I, I mean, Therefore, he would—he was somebody who respected the Buddha. We, we know from his actions. So no, Genghis Khan did not attack the Bahamian Buddhas. It was the Taliban about 25, 30 years ago, 25 or so years ago, in the late 90s, I think, if I'm not mistaken. They are the ones who attacked the Bahamian Buddhas, and they are the ones who blew them up with dynamite. And before the Taliban, it was Aurangzeb who tried to destroy them with cannons, and he failed. So he fired cannons, Aurangzeb, at the Bahamian Buddhas. But uh, he was not able to destroy them. He was able to damage the, the statues to some extent. But Chinggis Khan has never attacked any Dharmic faith, any Dharmic practice. He actually did, did what he could to a certain extent to strengthen it. So this is, uh, I'm afraid, sir, I don't know where you found this, but it is, no, it is not uh, consistent with the facts. All right. Uh, Deva Bharata asks, how can a teen evolve in our Indian education system? So I kind of answered that question again uh, earlier, but uh, 
see right now if you want a job in the indian job market you're going to have to have a degree so you have to get your degree as of today maybe 10 years from today it will be obsolete but as of today if you're a teen you should get the degree you should go through the system whether you like it or not it's a pointless system but it's the only one that allows you to get a job although if you don't have a degree you may not not get a job in any big corporation or any such thing so get a job get a degree get a job but also educate yourself outside of the education system see the education system prepares us to it prepares us for a life of being sheep it prepares us for this uh, it mentally conditions us towards uh, being in a state where we are always obedient always receptive to commands we don't ask questions and all that it prepares us for being sheep so i would say that and it try, the education system tries to take up all of your time from the time you're a kid there's so much homework there's so much extracurricular activities that you don't have the time to go out and play so from a very early age it kind of uh, tries to brainwash children and destroy their their creativity and and uh, talent and inquisitiveness and all of that and curiosity so i would say that you need to take time out of education to get some real education so try to find out what you are interested in what your passions are what what fields or what what questions uh, interest you and try and learn something outside of the education system today all the answers are available for free on the internet just use the power of whatever your favorite search engine is and try and learn things and like i said earlier try and learn some some skills so many skills are available you can learn them for free web design web development graphic design photoshop adobe premiere pro and and so much more search engine optimization these are very interesting fields actually and uh, it's not hard to learn this stuff so try and acquire skills and try and be the best person you can try and be the try and maximize your potential whatever you need to you need to take some time to understand yourself what are your aptitudes what things are you good at what things do you like what things interest you and try and fulfill try and maximize your potential in, in these things and 10 years from now the skills that you acquire are going to make you very valuable not just in the sense of the job market but a valuable person for the nation and for the civilization long term so try and try and develop yourself the best of your ability outside of the education system get your degree because that's what you need right now for getting a job but also develop yourself outside the system and try and be the best possible person you can because india yeah, india needs young people who who have this uh, self confidence and who have these leadership qualities so not everybody should be a leader not everybody is designed or 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 has the aptitude to be a leader but if you invest in yourself in this manner if you have leadership qualities these will come out and that's what india needs in the future we need entrepreneurs we need leaders we need people with different talents and skills so that's what india's young people need to do today to invest in themselves today so that you can give back something to the country 10 20 years in the future so that's what we need to do sir manish asks how can we good get at physics numerical to get good at physics first of all you need to learn math lot of math and you need to do lot of practice solving problems to learn any skill you don't learn the skill by reading books you learn the skill by actually getting your hands dirty and solving problems 
So solve lots of math problems, solve a lot of physics problems, and that's how you get good at physics. That's how you internalize the laws of physics. Simple, straight answer. Okay, what would have happened if there was no invasion of the Mughals and the British? Well, India would have been a very different country. India would still have its original culture and India would be still Indian. Today, if you see, uh, if you see the sports, uh, when you have a sports event, at the beginning you have this parade or march past in which everybody dresses up in the, in the, in the national dress of their country, right? So when this happens, you will find that the Eastern Asian countries, Thailand, Burma, Cambodia, etc., even Indonesia, they the dresses they wear and the culture they demonstrate, they display, is more Indian than what the Indian contingent is, is demonstrating, right? What, what the kind of clothes they're wearing and all that. So there is more Indianness outside of India today. There is more Indian culture alive in Thailand and in, in Myanmar in Indonesia and in Cambodia than in India itself. So that situation would not have been there if there was no invasion of the Mughals and the British. But it is what it is. We need to evolve again as a nation. Right now, we are very much confused. Uh, the system kind of tries to make us ashamed of our own culture. Most of us like to tone it down. Even if we practice our own religion or culture at home, we don't show it in the open. So these things would not have been there. If the British and the and before that the, the the Turks had not invaded, so that's the answer, sir. What would happen if all the Gavar Netas of this country are replaced by experienced IAS and IPS? The IAS and IPS are the bureaucracy, and they are part of the problem. India needs people. Uh, India needs to overhaul its entire system. The Netas are a problem, but the IAS and IPS are also, many of them are good. I'm not saying they're all bad. Many of them really want to serve the country. Many of us, many of them get into the IAS and IPS because they want to give something to the country. They want to contribute something. But the system forces them to behave in a certain manner. They have to take orders from the politicians. And the politicians, their entire the system is such that they don't get into politics to serve the country. They get into politics to serve themselves. The, such is the system of democracy in this country today. You must be asking yourself, why do we always have the same old people who stand for election? Why don't we have new people? It's because new people can't stand for election in this system. You can technically stand for election, but you will get nowhere. Because if you want to have a chance in the electoral system in India, you need to be able to spend crores of rupees in the election campaign. If you don't do that, you are invisible. And in a democracy, Everybody should have the right to vote and the right to stand for election on a, on a, on a level field. And that isn't there in India. So it's, it's a democracy only in name. People should be able to stand for election on the same equal level footing as anybody else. And only the politicians have that privilege today because of the power of money. And that's why political parties are so powerful. And that's why. And the thing is that in political parties, you don't have internal democracy. Right? There are no elections within political parties. These are all monolithic fiefdoms. It's always the same people in power. And sometimes if they're not in power, then they will choose 
who will come to power you know as a kingmaker so these are some of the internal problems in our so-called democratic system and that's why the country is in the shape it is today that's why it's being pulled in all kinds of different directions everybody has small local petty personal agendas to to enhance their power and their money and they, they basically don't care about the country there are very few politicians who actually care about the country i'm not saying none of them does some of them do have integrity and they do want to do something good for the country but those are in a minority as we all know very well so these are the systemic structural issues with the indian system the so called democratic system which we have adopted wholesale from a small island west of europe this system is not appropriate for an enormous subcontinent sized country as india this system that we have adopted this westminster democracy system it evolved over several centuries in a small little island which was not really a democracy it was actually a monarchy so this system is entirely inappropriate for india india need, needs to have its own democratic system democracy with indian characteristics we had that before the invasions india was india is the birthplace of democracy not greece the greek democracy is a sham the ancient greek democracy it was a sham so that's what we need to learn from our history we had our own democratic system during the mahajanapadas and even before that so we can learn something from that and we can try and revert back to an indigenous democratic system i am a firm believer in democracy the people come first the people are the highest in a nation the highest morality for a ruler is that the nation and its people must prosper so we need that sort of democracy not the netas should prosper or the bureaucrats should prosper which is what's happening right now so there is definitely a great deal of scope for change and reform but right now every politician is invested in the system that brought them to power that's why we are stuck with this system that was started 70 years ago and it's still going on the people who created the system are all dead and we are ha having to deal with it we should have the power to change the system and to ameliorate it to make it better in order to make this country more efficient and to start fulfilling the enormous potential that india has so changes are needed reforms are needed when they will happen i have no idea they should happen soon when were the vedas written well we don't exactly know when they were written it was a very long time ago see the rigveda speaks about a time when india was a rural civilization it there is no mention of cities of an, of a great urban uh, civilization or culture it's all about uh, the pastoral life the rural life so it is clearly something that greatly predates the so called harappan phase of our civilization the harappan phase of our civilization was a massively industrialized and urbanized society every town every village was properly planned it was well made you had multi storied buildings you had incredible engineering feats for that time you had great architecture everything was standardized ways measures everything so this was a highly evolved society it had evolved over thousands of years the vedas talk about a time much before that so the harappan phase the mature harappan phase is around 3000 bce or thereabouts yeah and the early harappan phase is about 5 or 6000 bce maybe 7000 bce so maybe that 
could be perhaps the time when the Vedas were written or maybe somewhat before that. So these and, and from the age of the Saraswati also, we can get some clue of when the Vedas were written because the Rig Veda speaks about the Saraswati as this mighty, powerful river, the greatest of all rivers in the country. And that happened at least before 6000 BCE because around 6000 BCE, the Indian monsoon started declining and the Saraswati started declining herself. And she died out around 1500 BCE or thereabouts. So the Rig Veda speaks about a river which was in its prime, not a river in decline. So that is at least 6000 BCE, which is 8000 years before today. So all of this evidence, although it is circumstantial, all of it, when we take it together, it looks like the Rig Veda is at least 8000 years old, or if not older. So that is the information we have as of today. Beyond that, we can't say for sure. But I think from this information that I just gave you, it's at least 8000 years old. Is it fine to say that millions of people died during 1940 to 50 because of Gandhi alone and the bad decisions he took? Well, Gandhi did not kill anybody. We know that. He believed in nonviolence, fasting, all that. But the bad decisions he took, well, he did not speak against the British. Okay, what, what other decision could he have taken? Let's go back to the time Mr. Gandhi came back to India late 1910s, late 1920s. When did Gandhi come back to India from South Africa? Let me look up the exact date. When did Gandhi return to India? Okay, he came back in 1915. See, the thing about history is you don't have to memorize every date. If you try and memorize dates, you will lose track of the cause and, cause and effect uh, chain. The real deal about learning history is to understand causality, the cause and effect chain. Dates you can always look up. Everything is available online. You don't have to memorize dates. So Gandhi came back to India in 1915 and very quickly he established himself miraculously as the greatest and most powerful leader in the Indian National Congress, which was created by the British. Okay, The British created the Indian National Congress. It was in a vehicle of the British. So this guy comes back to India 1915. In, in just a couple of years, he's become all powerful. He has sidelined all the leaders of the Congress. People like Jinnah are disillusioned. Jinnah was an Indian nationalist, FYI. You know, he was completely marginalized by Gandhi. All other leaders were sidelined. Gandhi became the shining star almost overnight. How did that happen? Strange, isn't it? And by 1920, he was regarded as the tallest leader in the country. Everyone worshipped him. Everyone basically adulated him. And they would do anything he said. So what if Gandhi had issued a proclamation in 1920? Go kill all the British. Go outside, go out on the street, find one British person, find one British occupier of our land and kill him. You kill one person, you go home. That's it. Your job is done. If he had issued that order to the people of India, British rule would have been, would have been over in 28 to 48 hours. And millions and millions of lives would have been saved. The lives that they killed by a, the lives they took by engineering famine after famine. Because there were many more famines after 1920 that, that are not even properly recorded. Right? And it's not just famines. 
people died in famines, those numbers are underreported. Those are the British figures. But also, there were lots of deaths because of malnutrition from the famines. Yes, we know. But also because of epidemics. Because when you are malnourished, you are more vulnerable to illnesses. And those deaths from these terrible epidemics of plague and whatnot, these were report, not recorded as part of the famines. So the actual figures are much worse than what we are told. So had Gandhi issued the order to the people of India, go kill the British and end British rule, the British were how many in number? 100,000 or so in India. And India had 300 million people. We would have wiped the British out in a just war in 24 to 48 hours. It is perfectly justifiable to kill your oppressors and to kill foreign occupiers of your land. It is perfectly valid. There is no ahimsa needed in that. You, ahimsa is also basically preventing long-term violence. To kill the oppressor and prevent long-term violence is also ahimsa. So Gandhi gave us a perverted, warped definition of ahimsa. He said inaction is ahimsa, which is absolutely wrong. And, and basically, he prolonged British rule in India for at least two to three decades. Had he, as the Indian leader, tallest Indian leader, actually issued the, the call for violence against the British, there was no way the British would have lasted beyond 24 to 48 hours. So he had the, the power to do that, but he chose to prolong British rule and to delay India's independence by at least two decades. So yes, you are right that millions of people died because of the decisions Mr. Gandhi took or did not take. It is time we re-evaluate the role of Mohandas Gandhi in our country's history. Okay, some more questions. Romil asks, what are my views on a stupa located in Nala Sopara, Mumbai, and the artifacts found during the, during the 1880s? There is more, not much data on the internet. There are stupas everywhere in this country. There are artifacts everywhere in this country, and they are not recorded. They are not, there is no documentation. Nala Sopara was once known as Sopara, Shurparak in old days, I believe. It was a very major uh, center uh, of, of trade and learning uh, during about during the time of the king, the great Chhatrapa king Nahapana and Chastana, etc., who who no one knows about today. Those were very great kings. Uh, so yes, it is. Uh, these are these are very significant uh, archaeological finds, and unfortunately, they are not documented. A, the ASI, like I spoke about in a previous episode, they have no inclination towards uh, towards preserving our real heritage. They are only interested in preserving our the heritage of our occupiers, which is unfortunate. So. Yeah, there is a stupa in Nalasopara. It is not excavated. It is just a big mound, I think, covered with earth to most part. And there are thousands or tens of thousands of such archaeological sites throughout India. Many of them will be incredibly valuable. They will have all kinds of incredible artifacts. If we find them, we will actually be able to piece together the real history of this country in way more detail than we know today. Our understanding of our history before the foreign Turkic invasions is, is quite vague, right? So there's so much left to discover and unfortunately nothing is being done right now. Hopefully, hopefully it will be done in the future. 
but yes, you're right. There is this stupa in Nalasopara that is still unexcavated, unexplored. And maybe it's a good thing because if the ASI were to find priceless artifacts there, those will disappear. Who knows? It, there is a strange pattern of such things happening. So that's about the stupa in Sopara, Mumbai, North Mumbai. Okay, I have answered that question about the Kushans, Arindam. Uh, when British, the British first set up factories in India and gained immense profits, why didn't Indians learn those skills and set up their own factories with the British had little to no power? The factories they set up in India were basic factories. India was an industrialized nation, an industrialized civilization before the British came to India. Indian skills, India had factories, India was a fully urbanized, fully industrialized culture. The British de-industrialized India, they destroyed those industries. There were so many industries, textiles, ship making, uh, iron smelting. India made the best steel in the history of the world. It was called wood steel by the British, it was called Damascus steel by the Arabs, but it was Indian steel, it was made in India. It was just brought to Damascus in the raw form and then it was it was forged into swords and whatever other uh, implements. So India developed this, this uh, technology. It's an incredibly advanced technology around 500 BCE or thereabouts. It was called Ukku, Ukku steel in, in southern India. It was developed, I believe, in Tamil Nadu and, and later on in Sri Lanka also you find evidence of that. So India had all these industries in all different uh, technological domains, which were destroyed by the British because they wanted Indians to buy British goods. So to do, the, do that, they had to first destroy Indian industries. So the British de-industrialized India. India is the original industrialized nation and civilization. So there was nothing great to gain from those pathetic little skills the British were uh, imparting in those factories. It was all basic skills. We already had much higher skills, which were destroyed. So that's that's the actual answer. Okay. Yeah, this is a question I, that turns up all the time. Is Gobekli Tepe older than our civilization? See, Gobekli Tepe is a single site, single archaeological site. It may be a remnant of our larger culture. We don't know. There are a couple of other sites around it in that region in Anatolia, but it's not a civilization. A civilization is something else. A civilization is a large geographical area in which you have a single overarching culture, a single unifying language, and you have a society whose institutions are all based in the indigenous culture. They are the foundational principles and morals and ethics of every institution and of, of the laws are within the indigenous culture. So that's what a civilization is. It's something that has, which is a net exporter of culture and something that has a very large area of influence that far exceeds its boundaries. That's a civilization. That's what India was. Gobekli Tepe is one archeological site. So it's not a civilization, first of all. Is it older than Indian civilization? Well, it seems to be about 11,000 years old, which would make it older than the oldest uh, archaeological site we find in India, which is Birana, which is about nine and a half or 10,000 years old. 
So as of today, yes, it seems to be older than the oldest archaeological site we have excavated thus far. But we know that there are several thousand Harappan era archaeological sites in the Saptasindhu region that have never been excavated. We have ex excavated and explored less than 1% of the actual number of sites that we have. So the moment we start excavating and exploring more, the real antiquity of our civilization will start emerging. And I have no doubt that it's going to go back 15,000 years or even 20,000 years. So with the data that we have today, yes, it is older than our oldest archaeological site. In the future, we may find different evidence. Okay, some more, some more, some more questions. Okay, I'm getting so many questions, I'm getting lost in that. The Harappans were Rigvedic people. Most they were most likely post-Rigvedic people, but yeah, okay, they were Vedic, they were part of the Vedic continuum, yes. But while Sanskrit is written and read from left to right, why was their discovered script written from right to left? Very good question. I love it. These are the kind of questions we should be asking. Only then can we understand history and our past properly. Great question. Brilliant question, sir. Sanskrit is a language. A script is a vehicle that carries the language. Sanskrit is so old, it has been carried on a number of scripts. You have the Kharoshthi script, you have the Brahmi script, you have the Sharada script, today you have the Devanagari script. You can even use other scripts for Sanskrit. Right? It is so old, it has been, it has been uh, written in a variety of scripts. You can even use the Tibetan script to write, to write Sanskrit, which you will find some, in some places in the north of the Himalayas. You can even use the Mongolian Soyambhu script to write Sanskrit. So the point is that Sanskrit is such an ancient language, it has been written in different scripts and in different periods of time. So today the Devanagari script is written, written in a certain manner from right to left, or sorry, from left to right. In the past, I think it was Kharoshthi, if I'm not mistaken, which was written the other way around, which is fine. So it is because of the incredible antiquity of this language, which has been around for several thousand years, for many thousand years. That's why you find it written in a variety of scripts at different periods in time. And there is no rule or law that says that Sanskrit can only be written in a certain manner. It can be written in any way, as long as the script is logical and it is able to carry the Sanskrit language properly and it's able to reproduce the pronunciations accurately. That's all that matters. So during the Vedic age, there may have been a different script that we are not aware of today, right? During the Harappan era also, there could have been, there could have been a different script, like we know. So that's the thing. Uh, I hope that answers your question. Why doesn't India patent yoga? Well, India is, doesn't seem to be interested in uh, in preserving its culture. Today you find that yoga is being uh, it's being uh, distorted in the West. There's all kinds of weird forms of yoga, goat yoga and dog yoga and hot yoga and cold yoga and drunk yoga and, and whatnot. 
it's it's been reduced to a form of exercise a form of stretching power yoga and all that and india is doing nothing to preserve the uh, sanctity and uh, and the basic uh, the original form of what yoga is india has basically given up on yoga it looks like and who's the authority in india that, that is in charge of preserving our culture it's the government of india so here's what i say should be done see let me give you a different example you have something called shaolin kung fu or shaolin kung fu is also practiced in the west but they don't deviate from the classical school of shaolin kung fu they don't start implementing uh, or introducing uh, new variations or forms of into this ancient practice into the, into the, into this ancient martial art because and the reason for this is because the final authority in shaolin kung fu is the shaolin temple in henan province of china the shaolin temple is the global authority of what is what is the correct form of shaolin kung fu and what is not so in india we don't have any such institution that decides what yoga is and what yoga is not so india should create an institution an authority that will be the final authority in yoga it will it will adjudicate the matter of what constitutes yoga and what does not it will lay down strict guidelines and principles and any form of yoga in the west is, that does not adhere to these principles will be declared as not being as not being considered yoga so that is a simple thing india can do an institution of yoga maybe uh, an institute of yoga which is the final global authority just like shaolin the shaolin temple is for kung fu it's a simple step india can take and reclaim yoga and the sanctity of yoga i mean it it, it doesn't cost much to do this it just takes a little bit of leadership so unfortunately india is uh, currently not interested in uh, in pursuing its national interest when it comes to indian culture indian culture is being mangled and distorted worldwide it's being appropriated now many people in the west are even try, beginning to claim that yoga is is not even indian it was something that the british introduced in india and so on which is absolutely a lie we know that so it's not about patenting yoga it's about creating a glow an institution an institute of yoga which is the global authority india the government of india should create this institution this institute and declare it the global authority in in adjudicating matters of yoga and deciding what constitutes yoga and what does not constitute yoga that way india will be able to reclaim yoga for itself because india is the birthplace of yoga india is the nation the culture the civilization that gave this great art form this great uh practice to the world it's a gift of india so india needs to reclaim that in this manner easy easy to do i hope it's done okay some more interesting questions oh is it, okay this is by garuda is it true that we have some 40 million manuscripts out of which 95% are not translated bb roy made this claim uh it is known for a fact that we have several million ancient manuscripts mostly palm leaf manuscripts and parchments 
of various kinds that are gathering dust in various places. Some of them are in uh, the hands of the ASI. Some of them are gathering dust in various temples in India, ancient temples. They have mostly in the south of India, which escaped destruction during the Turkic uh, depredations of India. So yes, there are millions of manuscripts that are just lying around gathering dust. They are crumbling. They are beginning to crumble, many of them. And if nothing is done, we will lose all the information that is contained in them. So many of them are really ancient ones. We don't even know. We will not know how old they are unless they are cataloged and tested. So none of that is happening as of today. So yes, we have a great wealth of information waiting to be tapped into and preserved very old manuscripts, which basically contain a great deal of historical records of our past. So most of them are not translated. I don't want them to be translated, just preserve them in the digital in, in the digital form. Even in the original Sanskrit is fine, or Tamil, or whatever language they are written in. They need to be digitized. That is the first step. We don't need everything to be translated into, into English. Let's learn Sanskrit and, and read this manuscript, right? Why not? So the first, the most essential step is to digitize the, the manuscripts so that they don't get lost if they crumble, which they eventually will. So that's the situation that is most likely correct. I think it's more than 95% not translated, maybe 98%. So that's the situation we are in right now. Okay, what is India doing to counter China's string of pearls initiative? Uh, good question. Uh, we do have some very good uh, uh, geographical, natural geographical gifts. We have the Andaman Islands, which are like a natural, unsinkable aircraft carrier. So I think the government of India has constructed a couple of airstrips there. So we can land uh, military planes there, fighter planes and transport planes and all that. Uh, India is building a few submarines, maybe five or six Scorpion submarines. And India is investing in nuclear submarine technology. So we will have a fleet of nuclear submarines, maybe five or six of them in the next 20 years. So India is doing a little bit, some baby steps to counter this thing. What can India do? It can do much more. It can develop a blue water navy that can actually take control of the Indian Ocean region just to safeguard it from from the kind of actions that China is known to take, right? So there is some steps are being taken. We have military satellites that coordinate our Navy together and give it a real time view of what's happening, you know, network centric, uh, network centric warfare if required. So some steps are being taken. I would like to see many more steps being taken. India has the potential to basically uh, safeguard the Indian Ocean region for all civilized countries, if it so chooses to, and for itself. It is in, the, in India's national interest to develop a powerful blue water navy, because if you are not powerful, somebody else will come and replace you as a power. Nature abhors a vacuum. Power also abhors a vacuum. Right now, the Indian Ocean region is kind of a power vacuum. There is some American presence there, some French presence, a tiny bit of Indian presence. And there is an increase in Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean region. So the Chinese are intent on filling this power vacuum. India should not let that happen. And the String of Pearls initiative is essentially these ports that China is constructing everywhere. So there are ports in Myanmar, ports in Bangladesh, port in Sri Lanka, 
Uh, Maldives also is a target and Pakistan, as we know. So the solution is a powerful blue water Navy that can take out a Chinese port at will at any given time if required. So that's what India should do. India should invest in submarines. India should invest in surface, above surface vessels. India should invest in proper distributed lethality in the Indian Ocean. So I hope that it is something that is on the planning board and something that will be implemented soon because, because in 10 years time, things will be very different. India needs to quickly adapt and evolve with the winds of geopolitical change that we are witnessing right now. It's going in a certain direction. The United States is waning as a power. China is rising as a power. And if it continues like this, then India will be in a very dangerous neighborhood. So it is time for India to quickly take action and become a power in its own right so that the Chinese are properly counterbalanced and they behave themselves. Good question, sir. Hmm, good question. Uh, one world, one people. Is that the principle of communism? How does communism differ from socialism? One world, one people means a monoculture. It means that every culture, every local manifestation of any culture has been stamped out. And there is only one ruling principle in the world, communism, Marxism. That is what one world, one people means. We are not one world, one people. We are a lot of different people who should live in harmony. We should have local cultures. We should promote localism. That's what makes the world beautiful. That's what is so interesting. When you travel, you see different cultures everywhere you go. It, that's what makes the world interesting. If you have just one culture everywhere, good God. I mean, that's the, that's the worst nightmare, right? So what exactly is communism, right? I have said this in the past. I'm going to say it again. Communism, here's the one sentence definition of communism. Communism is a socio-political toolkit. And when I say communism, I also mean Marxism. Marxism, communism, social, uh, socialism, these are more or less interchangeable. Socialism is a softer form of Marxism or communism. So let's talk about Marxism. In one sentence, Marxism is a socio-political toolkit whose sole objective is to enable a very small group of people to capture and retain political power at any cost, by any means. That's what it is. So everything you are taught about communism is to reduce you to cannon fodder, to reduce you to pawns on the chessboard that this small group of people will use to maximize their power. That's what it is. Communism differs from socialism. Socialism is a softer form of communism. Uh, socialism does envisage some form of democracy. India is officially socialistic, a socialist secular republic. Socialism is basically the pursuit of poverty. Everybody should be on the same level financially. Uh, no matter how talented you are, you may be, you will be dragged down to the same level as the average. That's essentially what socialism is. It is not the right ideology or, or, or system for anybody to follow. Uh, and neither is capitalism. Capitalism is the unbridled pursuit of, of never-ending money of never-ending resources on a finite planet is going to destroy the planet, which it already is. So neither capitalism is the right solution, neither is communism, no? neither is Marxism, and so neither is socialism. The world needs a different solution to its problems. 
So I am not a believer in, believer in socialism or communism or Marxism. And even capitalism is very dangerous because it's destroying the planet. We need a balance in, in things. So a different solution is required for the world's problems. Okay. Um, some more interesting questions. I'm sure there are lots. Taj Mahal or Tejo Mahalaya? We don't know. We don't have sufficient information. We don't have sufficient data. There is clearly something about the Taj Mahal that is hidden from the people. Uh, there is a passage under the structure which leads somewhere else. And it is possible it could have been a pre-Turkic uh, structure in the past. We don't know for sure. The ASI is in possession of this monument and it doesn't allow any, any investigation into the matter. So right now, I would say that the possibility is there. It is possible that it could have been something different, that something else existed on that location before the so-called Taj Mahal was constructed. Maybe it was a pre-Turkic structure there that has uh, been destroyed and that and whose uh, records we have lost. So we will know only if there is a proper archaeological investigation. The ASI doesn't want that to happen. In the future, if we disband the ASI and, and replace it with a proper professional archaeological organization, then maybe we will be able to find, to shed some light on this matter. As of today, we have insufficient data to answer this question. Okay, more questions. My views about Chanakya's economic policies and whether they can be implemented successfully today in our country. Well, those policies that he implemented, he did them very successfully to an, uh, 2,000 few, few hundred years ago, 2,300 years or, or so ago. So the world was very different then. Today's world is different. We can certainly take a great deal of inspiration from Chanakya's policies, economic policies, other policies, and we can modify them and and tailor them to suit today's situation, today's world. Today's world is very different. We have a different pace of life. We have technology, different technology, and we have a different geopolitical climate. So everything is different, but the principles of the national interest still apply. They always apply. And that's what guided Vishnugupta Chanakya. So the policies he followed were based on that, on the principle of the national interest. And those policies were very successful. In India, those were indigenous policies tailor-made for India's uh, civilization and culture. So we can definitely uh, take inspiration from that and we can definitely study those policies in detail and maybe tweak them, modify them to be implemented in today's, uh, today's India. I think it should be very, very much possible if we change it and, and adapt it to the present uh, 21st century climate. Why are we taught that Gandhiji gave us freedom? Uh, Subhash Babu, Bhagat Singh, Savarkar are real gems of Indian freedom. Then why are there no mentions of Subhash Babu disrespect of Savarkarji? 
Why? Because the NCERT and other textbook writers had a very clear political agenda. They were under instructions by the ruling regime of India, the Nehruvian regime, to glorify Nehru and his benefactor, Mr. Mohandas Gandhi. So they kept on writing. The, the entire uh, curriculum of Indian history is slanted in this ideological fashion. Even if you look at the master's degree uh, textbooks, that you find in various in, uh, Indian universities, Bhagat Singh is uh, referred to as an extremist and a terrorist. So this is the kind of uh, twisting of facts that has been done. He was a freedom fighter. He fought for the, for the freedom of India. He died for the freedom of India. He gave up his life for the country. And so what if he did it by violent means? Gandhi's non-violence delayed our independence by at least 20 years. Had we resorted to justifiable violence, against the British, they would have been free in 48 hours if the entirety of India went out in the streets to wipe the British out. It was that easy for us to do it. It is because of the kind of leaders we had that we suffered so much. A nation's destiny depends on the kind of leaders we have. It's all about leadership. It's all about leadership. Today, tomorrow, in the past, it's always been about leadership. If you have the wrong leader, you're going to go in the wrong direction. So that's what happened after Gandhi. It was Nehru, Mr. the great Mr. Sri Nehruji, who ensured that our textbooks go in a certain direction ideologically. The education system has been used as an instrument of, of social engineering. It has been used to brainwash generations of India Indians into believing the wrong things. And uh, the leftists, the Marxists of India, were given the charge of writing India's history textbooks. And that's why we, we are in the situation that we are today. The, Mr. Bose, Subhash Chandra Bose, Nitaji is completely marginalized. There is very little written about him compared to how much, I mean, how significant he was. And like you said, other, other freedom fighters are disrespected or not mentioned at all. So this is all because of the Nehruvian regime and the later regimes of which continued in that direction. So I'm glad that today we are all discussing this openly. I'm glad that today's youngsters are all beginning to become aware of these distortions. And I think going forward, we will know more about our history in a more accurate fashion. So I'm really happy about this. Right. Okay, Poko-chan, is the modern atom atomic model accurate? Is it possible that the current atomic model may be wrong? See, uh, the best model that we have as of today is called the standard model. So that is a family of particles. I think it's 17 subatomic particles and various counterparts and antiparticles and all that. That is the best model we have thus far. Uh, and uh, quantum field theory is the most accurate theory that we have as of today. Now, we know that it, this, this model, this entire uh, framework does not include gravity, the force of gravity. And we don't know much about the force of gravity. So clearly, it is not the most accurate model, but it's the most accurate we have thus far. It is not entirely accurate. It cannot account for gravitation. It cannot account for dark matter and dark energy which is 95% of the universe's mass energy. So 
to the extent that we see the world, it seems to be accurate. But there's a whole unseen universe out there, which immensely dwarfs what we can see. So as far as that is concerned, we have no idea what it is. So our modern model, the standard model, is accurate to about 5% of the universe. <laughs> so that's the situation we are in right now. Okay, But it's the best we have. Hopefully, some new breakthroughs will happen soon in theoretical physics. I don't know. Many people claim they have seen Ashwatthama, son of, son of Dronacharya, who was cursed in the Mahabharata by Shri Krishna. To be alive with pain till the end of Kaliuga, is he still alive? Well, I haven't seen him. And to the best of our knowledge, immortality doesn't exist. Maybe it may have existed in a different yuga. Maybe our science isn't completely accurate. But to the best of our knowledge, we have no credible evidence of this. And I haven't seen him. I haven't met anybody who has seen him. There is no documentary evidence that Ashwatthama is alive. No photographs, no video. So, like I said, we don't have sufficient evidence to say that he is still alive. He may be, possibly. I am not ruling out the possibility. A small, very small possibility. But to the best of our to the, of our knowledge, this may not be true. It may be, possibly. Okay, some more questions. Is democracy good for a developing country like India? That's the age-old question, isn't it? I believe that Subhash Chandra Bose had intended to impose a dictatorship for about 20 years until India developed properly. I am a firm believer in democracy, yes, but sometimes the democracy is not right. The, the kind of democracy, I mean, democracy takes many forms. And the form of democracy, the so-called democracy we have today, is not suitable for our country. It doesn't take our country forward. It just holds it back. It doesn't give people the power. Democracy is supposed to empower people. It doesn't empower the people. The people are still supplicants to the politicians and the bureaucrats. So the kind of democracy we have today is not good for a developing country like India. India needs a, develop, a democracy that truly empowers the people and not the small minority, the leaders, the netas, the politicians, the people must be empowered. And if that happens, then it's good for India. In some cases, people believe a dictatorship is good, like I just mentioned. For example, in Singapore, Singapore was a dictatorship for a very long time under Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. He was what's called a benevolent dictator. He actually did all his life he spent trying to develop the country and make, make them, making his small city-state more powerful and more, more prosperous. And he was not oppressive like some other dictators that, that we know of. So, so yeah, he is called a benevolent dictator. So such a, such a thing may possibly have been good for India in the first 20 or so years. Somebody like Subhash Chandra Bose, possibly. That's all hypothetical, we don't know. But I definitely am of the opinion that our democracy needs to change it needs to empower the people and not leave, uh, leave people at the mercy of the, the politicians and the institutions that don't really serve the country. So that's the direction India should take. A better democracy, a democracy that truly empowers the people. That's what's needed. Okay, I'm going to take, let's say, two more questions. Two more questions. 
Okay, Sumed asks, shouldn't we ban the communist ideology and parties in India given their bloody history and separatist stance during India's partition? I am of the firm opinion that the national interest has to come first. A democracy cannot allow, allow the kind of freedom of speech in which you speak against the country and its interests, and you actually promote the interests of your enemies. And any political ideology that promotes the interests of outside forces over your own in national interest cannot be allowed in a democracy. But that's the kind of democracy we have. In the, in the name of freedom of speech and in the name of democracy, anti-nationalism, open anti-nationalism is allowed, whether in the form of speech or even worse, in the form of anti-national activities in the form of in, in the name of democracy. I believe that that sort of democracy doesn't serve the nation. Democracy has only one function. Its function is to serve the nation. Laws have only one function. They're supposed to serve the nation. The constitution has only one function. It's to serve the nation. The moment it stops serving the nation, it has to be changed. It has to be adapted to the, to the new circumstances. And we cannot keep on worshiping a set of laws that were written by the British and the constitution that was written by an unelected body. Right? So things need to change. Communism is anti-national anywhere in the world, whether it's in the US or in India. Communism is not a force for good. We cannot allow such ideologies, bloodthirsty ideologies in the name of democracy. Yes, I, I think that what you are saying does have a great deal of merit to it. I agree with you. All right, one more question, my friends, and then we are done for today. Saurav asks, why was Mr. Jinnah against the Khilafat movement and partition of Bengal on the basis of religion, even though he fueled the creation of, part of Pakistan? That is a great question. I mean, why doesn't this is uh, why, why isn't this addressed in our history textbooks? Mr. Muhammad Ali Jinnah was a true secularist. He was not a practicing Muslim. He drank alcohol. He ate pork. Right? He was a true secularist. He was a proponent of Hindu-Muslim brotherhood, Hindu-Muslim unity. He was of the belief that Hindus and Muslims should work together and live in harmony and keep their uh, so-called religious differences aside for the, for the sake of the nation. He was an Indian nationalist, Mr. Jinnah, in the early 20th century. And he opposed the creation, the formation of the Muslim League, which he would later join, strangely enough. When the Muslim League was formed, he opposed its formation. He opposed Gandhi's advocacy of the Khilafat movement. He opposed the partition of Bengal. So this is the early career of Muhammad Ali Jinnah. He was a true Indian nationalist. And then what happened was that he was completely marginalized by Mr. Mohandas Gandhi. Mr. Gandhi was way more charismatic than Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Jinnah did not have a pleasing personality. He was a very serious person. He was not pleasant to be with. Was a, that's the kind of person he was. That's the kind of personality he had. Gandhi was very pleasing. He was very inspiring. So Gandhi took over this entire uh, independence movement, sidelined Jinnah. Jinnah was marginalized. He eventually joined the Muslim League just to keep his political career alive. 
He spent a number of years in exile out of India, out of politics in the UK. He was a very uh, big Anglophile, even though he was an Indian nationalist. You know, so that's the kind of uh, conflicted personality Mr. Jinnah had, and he was he spent a great deal, almost a decade or more, slightly more, in the wilderness, the UK, out of politics, and then a transformation happened in him. He chose to put self before nation, and he chose to serve a small section of India rather than the entirety of India, which was his true nature. And that's why he started, he went back and uh, to India, he joined the Muslim League and he started advocating the creation of a separate nation for the Muslims on the basis of the so-called two-nation theory. So that's how he changed sometime in the 1930s. He, he took a complete U-turn and he chose to put self before nation. So it's a sad story. It's a, it's a sad story of how somebody changes so much because of external circumstances. And he ended up destroying his own country. He ended up destroying the country that he fought so much for in the early stage of his career. And such is his failure, such is Muhammad Ali Jinnah's failure that none of his descendants has made Pakistan their home. All of his descendants today live in India. That's how the cookie crumbles. Okay, people, thank you so much for your questions. We are done for today. Uh, great questions. And we will continue with a different topic tomorrow. Tomorrow is World History. So I will see you tomorrow, 9 p.m. Indian time. Until then, take care and bye. Good night.